Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Have you ever watched the TV series Lie to Me? Have you been fascinated by how somebody could observe those quickly moving expressions on your face? Well, you're in for a treat today. We have Dr. Dan Hill with us. He is an expert in this field. He has a company called Sensory Logic, and we're going to explore the whole world of hijackles and micro expressions. So stay tuned. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are you living with the chaos, confusion, and uncertainty that a toxic person loves to create? Is a partner, parent, ex, sibling, child, or coworker causing you to second-guess yourself? That can be crazy-making. I'm here to help you save your sanity. So let's get down to it and figure some things out now. Stay tuned. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. As usual, I'm delighted that you're here. If you're a returning visitor, I'm glad you find value. If you're brand new, I hope you find value and you're happy that you found us because we're so glad you're here. There are hundreds of interviews for you to listen to and episodes, so be sure to go on over to SaveYourSanityPodcast.com and hear as many as you like. Some people listen to them over and over. If you feel moved to support the channel, you can do that at patreon.com slash save your sanity. So today I am so excited. I've been waiting for this. I have watched the series lie to me three times the entire thing. <laughs> it fascinates me completely and I'm trying to get better at it. So uh, I'm excited to have Dr. Dan Hill here with me. I'm going to tell you a bit about him. He's the founder and, and president, as I said, of Sensory Logic, which pioneered the use of facial coding in business in order to capture and quantify emotional dynamics. That means reading exactly what's going on behind the scenes, regardless of your words. The company has done work for over 50% of the world's top 100 um, B2C companies and has seven U.S. patents related to facial coding scoring techniques. Dan is the author of eight books. That's a lot. Including Emotionomics, featuring a foreword by Sam Simon, co-creator of the Simpsons and famous faces decoded a guidebook for reading others. And I've had a look at those books. You'll want to have a look too. So welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you so much. Looking forward to the conversation. Oh, me too. Um, so first and foremost, you know, micro expressions, these are the things that flash across our face. We don't have any control over them and um, maybe a, an occasional psychopath thinks they do. Um, and so we, we just express ourselves in these ways and give away our inner workings. Tell us a little more scientific definition of what micro-expressions are. 
Sure. Charles Darwin was the first scientist to take emotions seriously, and he realized in your face you best reflect and communicate your emotions. One of them is, for the reason you just cited, it's the only place in the body where the muscles attach right to the skin. So there are these really quick reactions. Uh, we also have more facial muscles than any other species on the planet. Mm -hmm. So a micro-expression is typically about one-sixth of a second. Uh, it is very much there and gone, and you've got to pay attention, but it can often proceed, you know, a, a longer thing. Like people will paste on a smile, for instance, but it's the expression that came before the smile that might tell you where someone's really coming from emotionally. Well, that's, that's the key, isn't it? It's the thing that happens in our mind before it connects with what we're going to say and may not connect in any way with what it is we have decided to say, right? Oh, absolutely. I, one of the reasons I got into this line of work, I didn't really know whether I'd be able to make a living from it. I was just fascinated and it made so much sense to me. Uh, one killer statistic is that the conservative estimation is that 95% of our mental activity is not fully conscious. In other words, we're a lot like icebergs and we're just kind of floating around in the North Sea and maybe we hit a ship every now and then. There's so much that we're not aware of. And, uh, you know, the biggest lies in life are really the ones we tell ourselves quite often. We, we dimly float through our lives. Well, that's interesting. I wonder when we're looking in the mirror, what it is we actually see. I mean, do we see our own micro expressions? I, I rather doubt it. I mean, I have, uh, you know, written, uh, you know, read exams or tests and other people have done. I've done my own. It looks to me like about one third of accuracy is what you can count on, both mm -hmm. in terms of people knowing what the emotions mean and then their ability to pick up the emotions of others. So we're a lot closer to being Watson than Sherlock Holmes. I think that's the truth of the matter. Well, I don't know that people would would feel all that good about that, but okay. I mean, we want to be the king of the hill, don't we? We want to be Sherlock Holmes. Well, there, for those of your listeners who are female, uh, you are a slight advantage over the guys. So you could take solace in that, for instance. <laughs> Well, we like that. Thank you very much. We'll take that for sure. Sorry, guys. That's the way it goes. You see, it came from Dr. Dan Hill. Nothing to do with me. So we're at an advantage, ladies. It's good stuff. All right. So I want to dive in where the meeting place of my work and your work come together, which is, of course, in the wonderful worlds of those people I call hijackals. And I created that term, Dan, because too many people were going to the internet. They were looking for a psychological diagnosis, and they were believing that the Google goddess was a psychological professional. <laughs> um, so I wanted them to have a term that we could talk about patterns, traits, and cycles, what was actually uh, happening in the behavior and the interactive relationships. And so hijackals are people who hijack relationships for their own purposes and then relentlessly scavenge them for power, status, and control. And so these people think they're the smartest person in the room and they're kind of the master puppeteers. So with that said, they have this not-so-micro-expression that I call the hijackal smirk. It's a, it's a look in their eye and a defiant look in their eye and a little twist of the mouth that kind of says, gotcha. <laughs> so what would that be a combination of? How would, how would you talk about that so we could understand it from a micro-expression point of view? Sure. Um, well, we're really talking about the emotion of contempt, which is probably the most fascinating one of the seven that facial coding can capture. 
And you're right, in the corner of the mouth, you get this little upturn. It almost can look like a smile, but it sure ain't. Uh, because a smirk is really a combination. And if you go by the textbook, it's a combination of disgust and anger. The disgust is because you lied to me or I found you beneath me, so you're kind of toxic and I'm rejecting you. The anger can come from a sense that, you know, you betrayed me. You weren't there as an ally. You prevented me from making the kind of progress I want to make, for instance. So that's a textbook definition. But really, for me, in the 20 years that I've used the tool, I've concluded the textbook is only partially correct because there can often be, and I think it particularly applies to what you're talking about, there can be an angle of pleasure in the sense that I am superior, that I'm above you, because I am struck over my 20 years of doing this work that a contempt smirk and a smile very often go together. There is that sense of superiority. So that's why it's such a rich emotion. And then you're right, it stays for a while. Uh, of the seven emotions that you can get at with facial coding, to me, contempt is almost attitudinal. It's not something necessarily that happened in the flash in the moment. It's something that kind of evolves and has staying power. And indeed, for anyone who's read John Gottman's work, you know that contempt is the most reliable indicator that a marriage will fail. Yes, and that's a big thing. I'm so glad you brought that up. But I want to parse this down a little deeper because I think everybody listening who's in a hijackal relationship knows that look. That look where they just, they raise, raise themselves up a little bit, look a little bit sideways, get that little look and, and those muscles around their mouth. And you get this feeling of, are you saying, is that okay with you? Or are you saying, there you go, you stupid fool. Um, and you're not sure which one to read. And if you're trying to please the hijackal, which they hope you are, you will read it more likely as a smile not as contempt, because how could they possibly do that? You love them so much and you take care of them and you're always concerned about them. So how could they possibly have contempt for you? People don't like to believe that. They really don't like to believe that. But I'm so glad that you said that about the smirk and that it does last longer and you can capture it. In fact, you can capture it on a camera. It is that long lasting. <laughs> Yeah, and it's really important what emotions go with it. So I'll just give you three examples of people who I've definitely noticed smirking. And I might even throw in a fourth. So if it's a fairly broad smile like Tom Brady, the quarterback who will combine it with a smirk, that's definitely a sense of superiority. And I'm enjoying kind of you know having the swagger and ruling the roost. If you go down to a really tepid smile, you've got none other than Bernie Madoff. I mean, this is obviously somebody who is fairly psychopathic in that, you know, a lot of the monies that were donated to him included charities uh, that were really trying to do good work. And it, it's hard to, you know, as uh, uh, Mark Twain once said, you know, the only problem with fiction is it has to make sense. Who could imagine that the all-time Ponzi schemer would have the last name of made off with your money, Bernie Madoff? I mean, this is just incredible. But he would show the smirk and the really tepid smile. But as you move to something more toxic, because you mentioned, for instance, maybe that really angry glint in the eye. If you go back to the textbook, of course, contempt is anger and disgust. But accompanying expressions may tilt that equation one way or the other. So I'm thinking of the rock star Prince right here from my hometown mm. of Minneapolis, St. Paul. He often combined it with that narrowed eyes, that real, you know, snake eyes anger. And so, you know, that was definitely a toxic brew, uh, given the intensity of the anger combined with the smirk. Didn't trust anyone and died without a will. 
Yes, that's an interesting example because the question also comes up, does it have anything to do with stature? You know, I often see that people of small stature, particularly the male variety, tend to have these kinds of things going on. And and, uh, do you think that relates in any way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many triggers for anger, but some of it is, you know, wanting power, wanting to set boundaries and set them in your favor. So Prince would have had both being a rather small and slight person. And it's true, I think, that very often, you know, when they say that what beauty is for a woman, height is for a man can can be a factor. Uh, go back to Napoleon, etc. Then he would also be, quite honestly, as an African-American, Minnesota is pretty white. We're pretty lily white compared to much of the rest of the country. So it, it puts you as an outsider right away. And the because we have a fairly prosperous uh, economy here in Minnesota, uh, we have a particularly large gap uh, between the black community and the white community in terms of income levels. So all of those factors could have played into Prince's reaction. And then you go on to him dealing with white executives at the music companies and all of his battles with them. So what was an initial problem quite possibly just got compounded. Well, I think they're very good at exacerbating difficult situations. In fact, they like to perpetuate them because it gives them a sense of power. But you just brought up a really interesting point. Are the micro-expressions across culture, or do they change for different cultures? They do go across cultures. I mean, the underlying physiology is the same. The same muscle movements correspond to the same emotions. What changes, however, and I've traveled over 65 countries, I've spoken and done research in over 20, so I've had a lot of opportunities to explore this. And so the differences really come in, you know, first of all, what might trigger it? You might Mm -hmm. have different values in one society versus another. And then there are what are called display rules. So the most fascinating of these is certainly Japan. Uh, because first you have what is somewhat true in Asiatic cultures where uh, you, you know, you have very large populations. You try, it's, it's hard to stick out. You maybe don't want to get to stick out because the, the dictator, the leader in charge may, you know, knock you down. Uh, but in the case of the Japanese, they were also influenced by England. Uh, just when Britain was really at the height of its power was when Japan was trying to find its way and make its presence known on the world stage. So they took that British reserve and they brought it into the equation as well. And so in Japan, it's certainly the hardest place to code. Uh, The most reliable way to get the codes in Japan is much more around the eyes, uh, where the control is even less. Uh, Around the mouth, you know, we like to eat. We learn how to smile and pose for the camera. You know, there's a little bit more opportunity for both deception and going relatively more flat-faced or poker-faced in the lower part of the face. So really in Japan, you have to look for just the slightest tremors of a smile uh, you know, and other things around the mouth. And otherwise, you've got to move more toward the, the eyes themselves. Uh, another way to put that, yeah, another way to put that is I was once a student in Oxford and uh, someone read off what their famous favorite haiku was, which was, only problem with haiku form, just as I'm about to say something, I run out of space. <laughs> That's coding in Japan. Well, you know, that gives a whole new meaning to the word inscrutable. It does. And... Um, and relatively speaking, the Chinese, for instance, are quite simple. Uh, I remember my first day in, in uh, Shanghai, and my guide said, oh, you won't be able to read us. It was not true. They were so much easier than the Japanese. Hmm. Well, and interesting, too, because you, as you were saying, that in the Japanese culture, it's something that you can detect around the eyes. And then you think how frequently people in Asian cultures wear masks. 
And then, you know, that still, still is evident, which is interesting. So there's so much to talk about, Dan, but I want to, I want to go back to the, to the beginnings of all of this. You know, I noticed that in my work that children, of course, are, are people without the same level of brain development that Adults are expected to have, although not all of them. <laughs> um, and so they're doing a lot of watching yes. right from birth. They're watching, watching, watching. Is this where the micro expressions come from? Is the observation? Where are they originating? Well, I think they're a survival tool. You you don't want it to readily be known to people who you might be, uh, you know, treating poorly, uh, about to swindle in some fashion. You don't want them to get a good bead on you. And so, you know, really, if we, we don't have a expression that gives away a liar, I mean, if we did, I mean, that would have been weaned out of us over the course of evolution <laughs> as a bad thing to have. And in modern society, of course, we'd head to the Botox center or the plastic surgeon <laughs> to deal with it. So, you know, it's really, you know, not available. But yes, we, we want to use these opportunities to pick things up and, and be safer. And the person who may be engaged in deceit, for instance, does not want to be picked up readily. That's why I think a lot of things can channel toward the, the really super brief micro expressions. Uh, but I also agree with you that children who are not in a power situation, just like, for instance, in the midst of COVID-19, unfortunately, we have more domestic violence. For anyone who's not in a power situation, it is really incumbent on them to be observant, to pay attention. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's part of where it might come from for children. Yeah, I've often said to people, you know, when the child starts to walk or to stand, don't you often have that feeling where you look at them and go, oh, they stand just like their dad. And the reason being, they've been observing standing, you know, this has been their school. So I wondered if they would observe micro expressions and try them out, because often they'll get these little looks on their face that are identical to their caretakers. Well, emotions are very contagious. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit of monkey see, monkey do. We're not that far removed from chimpanzees, biologically, genetically. Uh, and there's one of my favorite studies of all time, quite honestly, is uh, they had a uh, pack of, I think it was bamboos or chimpanzees, and they discovered that they would forego food. They would go without food if they could maintain an uninterrupted view of the leader of the pack. It was that important for them to know how the leader was feeling because based on the whims and the emotional impulsivity of the leader, they might be safe, they might be favored, they might just mm -hmm. be ignored, but it was really crucial to their survival within the, the troop. So is the microexpression a quick response to a perception? Or is it coming from my need to uh, respond to the world internally in order to stay safe? Well, uh, yeah, we, we're getting into the mysteries of human nature. Uh, I, I always love the quote from Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, who said, out of the twisted timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. So we're, we're really getting into the warp in the wood and, and so forth, the knots in the wood. I mean, I, I don't think there's any doubt that some of it has to be that it is camouflage, that we are trying to hide our reactions to make ourselves safer. I went on a non-hunting safari in Botswana a few years back, and I was just struck by the stress of the lives of animals as they try to survive not being eaten by somebody else. So I think a lot of it was going to come from that. I mean, you really always have to start with survival, survive mm -hmm. and thrive as the impulse. Um, so I would put my money there more than any place else. 
Interesting. So do these micro expressions change? If I were to get more comfortable in, in my environment, if I became uh, feeling safer in a relationship, would I use the expressions less? Would they tend to shift to match anything in my environment? Or are they kind of coded in to keep me safe when I'm young? Well, I, I think when you're young, um, you know, if, if you, and you can be really observant. I mean, one of the reasons I think I'm a facial coder, quite honestly, is my family moved to Italy when I was six years old. Uh, so I had to read nonverbal signals because I went to Italian first grade in a fishing village. I did not know the language at first. I tried to read the social dynamics of the classroom. And then as we left Europe almost two years later to return to America, two fairly seminal things happened for me. One is we stopped at Dachau, of all places, oh, the concentration okay. camp just north of Munich. And it left an indelible impression on me as to how people with power will unfortunately treat others who they despise, disregard, and so forth. And then we stopped in Amsterdam, and I fell in love with Rembrandt, but I also fell in love with Anne Frank because as a young boy who loved books, uh, going to the Anne Frank house, and here you had a young girl who you know, obviously was quite eloquent in her diary, uh, but I just related so much to her. And I did have a father with anger issues, and he was not above hitting me. He had been a farm boy, and that was just kind of his upbringing, that it was okay to you know, strike your, your son, maybe not your daughter, but your son. So, you know, I, I measured how my father was feeling. I wanted to keep a certain distance from him. Uh, so I was an unusually observant boy. I would say both because of the not knowing the language in Italy and then the father that I was dealing with. And I think both of those uh, really were important to me. And I think a lot of kids, the more precarious the situation, uh, if they're shrewd and going to survive, all the better that they can pick up those kinds of signals. Well, yes, and that brings us around to talking about toxic people because that's exactly what happens. You become hypervigilant. You're even a small child, you're reading them when they walk in the door. Like, is, am I safe? Is it okay? Do I speak? Do I smile? What do I do? So I think you do read those things. And another thing that just came to mind as you were saying that, Dan, was I had 20 20 vision when I was eight years old. And by the time I was 10 years old, I had incredibly bad vision and so nobody would believe I had a problem so I became extremely observant of how people walk and move and appear in space and so I had this opportunity to be able to recognize people by their gait by by their their rhythm uh, and all of that and then become very acutely aware of the sound of their voice because until they were about two feet in front of me I had no idea what their face sure. looked like <laughs> so I think there's a um as sort of a, a similar situation that you're talking about is that you learn to read these things because of survival needs and wanting to please the parent I mean as small children we know we need those giants in order to live. I mean, we get spit out of our mother, not like a horse or, or a cow. We don't just get spit out and licked off and then we leap up and run around the meadow. We are really, really aware that we need those giants. I can't move. I can't feed. I can't do anything. So it behooves us to become extremely observant about how to stay safe and survive in the environment. How early can you observe microexpressions? Um, I don't know that they have research findings for that exactly, but I think a good tangent that will give us some indication 
is that all of the facial expressions are on our face, you know, by about a year, uh, give or take. Mm -hmm. And the ability of the child to mirror and observe and really focus on the mother's expressions in particular seemingly is there almost immediately. So that would suggest that since those expressions can include micro expressions, that it's pretty much an innate ability. And again, I think you're right. It goes back to those power dynamics and needing protection. Uh, one of the re reasons I enjoy conversations with women is because they are really observant, often a little more observant than my fellow guys. Uh, there's a stanza, opening stanza to a poem by Wallace Stevens that goes, a duchess is not a duchess a hundred yards from the carriage. Women understand this. <laughs> and to my amazement, guys often don't. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to leave all that sexist talk to you, Dan, because I, I, I'm delighting in hearing it, but I'll leave it to you. I agree with you. I mean, obviously, male and female hijackals have different ways of presenting in the world, but they're equally as difficult. There are sure. an equal number of men, male and female hijackals, but they present differently. And that's sometimes problematic because we think that one is just a power stance and the other one is um, less than wonderful in the femininity department. And so we have different ways of discussing this and we have different language that we use for it. So I want to go back to your distinction between contempt and disgust and contempt being even um, more toxic than disgust. Say a little more about that because it really relates to our audience. Well, I, to me, disgust is really much more visceral. You know, the, the nose wrinkles like it's a bad smell. Uh, the upper lip curls like you're trying to get away from a bad taste. Uh, so I, I think really disgust operates on first, you know, just very primordial. You know, is this a food, a drink, something that I want to get away from? And go back to our ancestors, if they went up to a pond and they were going to take a sip of water and the water was fetid, well, that could endanger them. Uh, that could leave them, you know, doubled over and a chance for an animal to seize them. So you can really see the adaptive advantage to disgust as an emotion to, uh, you know, signal mm -hmm. us we're in danger. But I think it can already operate at a more moral level. Level, I don't think it's quite the same as contempt, but it can operate at a level where you know it's not just uh, a person who's contemptuous to us because of a, or disgusting to us because of an immediate action in terms of you know they didn't bathe today. It might also mean that we just learned we want to distance ourselves from them. Uh, that there's something odious about them in terms of their overall conduct. Uh, maybe it's an idea that we reject. So, um, you know, it's got interesting dimensions to it, but I still think contempt is a more fascinating one. Well, it's fascinating to me, too, because contempt is just rampant in toxic relationships. It's one of the hallmarks. I mean, once you start to recognize the the superior nature, the way that that people position themselves, they position their faces in that way, too. And so you may not even recognize that you're reading micro expressions, but you may very well be picking up on something and your visceral self is going, Ugh, move away from that. And then your logic comes in and say, oh, no, we have to have compassion. This is all wonderful. And then you are actually on high alert reading something and you're seeing the red flags and then you quickly put on your rose colored glasses and say, oh, no, that's not nice. That's not nice. So you were talking earlier about the, you know, pasting on a smile. How many kinds of smiles are there? 
Well, I've broken it down into four. In fact, some of my patents related to scoring systems. I really, almost as soon as I got into this, I said, you know, just going with, you know, it's a smile around the face or Dr. Ekman, who's an expert on facial coding, really the modern expert on facial coding, Dr. Paul Ekman, also had the, what he calls the Duchenne smile or the true smile where the muscle around the eye tightens and you get the twinkle in the eye. Uh, so those two distinctions are helpful, and sometimes the smile just around the mouth is called a social smile. But I actually eventually went out to four dimensions. So you have that, what I'll call the, the true smile, uh, the joyful smile that kind of fits the Woody Allen line where he said, happiness makes up in height what it lacks in length. So I think of the true smile as the champagne. Then you have the really broad smile, which I'll call pleasure. Um, because it really is distinct from just kind of like, you know, I pasted on a smile. Thank you very much. I'm okay. And then I added in the Filene's bargain basement of smiles, which I call acceptance, where, you know, maybe one side of the mouth rises slightly. So it's kind of, you know, unilateral. It can be very brief. There's really no pleasure there. It's kind of a big grudging. Okay. As in that's the worst joke I ever heard, but at least you tried to humor me. So those are the kinds of distinctions I tend to make. Okay, so I got true, joyful, and acceptance. What did I miss? Uh, there was pleasure. So there's joy, oh, pleasure. pleasure, satisfactions, that social smile, and acceptance is the Filene's bargain basement. I love that. I used to love Filene's bargain basement when I worked in Manhattan. <laughs> was it, it was an important thing. So do we naturally, viscerally react to these things and talk ourselves out of the ones that don't seem to match what we wish we were seeing? Or do we at a level take them in and act on them? Where, where is that calibration that we actually trust ourselves enough to pick up anything like that? Or are we that refined and able to see them without recognizing that we do? Well, anytime we sense something and know we have to change, that we have to adapt, now we have to exert energy. And we, you know, it's, it's really striking to me from facial coding that, ang that fear and surprise in many ways overlap because surprise is I'm on alert. <laughs> Something's changed in the status quo. It could be a good change. It could be a bad change. But fear really lines up a lot in terms of how it's expressed on the face because I think so often our reaction to, oh, I have to adjust is I don't really want to. I just as soon remain comfortable. Thank you very much. We're, we're a bit like house cats. We'd just as soon lie around for most of the day if we possibly could. Uh, and I think that's just human reality. So in a toxic relationship, it is easier to imagine that this is worthy of a hug, that you're going to smile, that you're going to embrace and step forward. In contrast, you know, what we've been talking about with contempt and also disgust, those are both adversive reactions you know, and on a profound level, not just physically, but emotionally, because all, how they show in the face is, you know, recoiling, backing away, lifting up and away above somebody, supposedly. You know, that's a real metaphorical statement going on and mm -hmm. worth paying attention to. And it's a shame we don't pay attention to it more often. Are there ways that we mask fear? Like some, you know, sometimes it seems like you, it, when you're in an environment where you're toxic and you're a child and you're in that caught position between I'm supposed to love this person, but I'm afraid of them. There are ways that I think we go through iterations on our face of adjusting to what will make the giant happy as opposed to what my initial visceral reaction was. 
Well, that could be. I mean, you know, if you show fear, then that almost can, in a sense, if you have someone who's even slightly sensitive, almost shame the giant because, oh, you're afraid of me. That must mean I'm worthy of being afraid of. And right. they could take that as a compliment, but they could also find that kind of rubs them the wrong way. So I think that's, you know, certainly a possibility. I mean, I've thrown out a few bouquets to women, so I'll throw out one for the men now, being one myself. Uh, I actually discovered in my book, Famous Faces Decoded, that the men, and these are all successful men, uh, they actually showed more fear than the women. So first of all, that's probably surprising to a lot of people who would have expected it to go the other way. Uh, but I would say on behalf of men that they are often called upon to step into difficult situations, to challenge themselves, to demonstrate some courage. And that can be a burden on guys to try to match up to that. Um, yeah. So I want to say to the guys who are listening, uh, feel okay. Uh, it is true that you are a human being, which means you show fear, but show to other men, including very successful men. I happen to be a tennis player, and Boris Becker, the German star, said, I don't remember a single point I won at Wimbledon. I only remember the fear of losing the match. And yet he won, what, two, maybe three Wimbledon titles. So yeah. if Boris Becker can feel fear, certainly the rest of us should be allowed to. Well, I agree. And back to the male issue, you know, that feeling the fear and then being a culture to be the protector, the one who walks towards the problem, the one who takes care of the people behind them. I know that, that that's something in the dynamic that I often say to couples is I'll say to the woman, you know, when, when do you hold your husband? When do you hold your partner? And there's often this quizzical look, like, what do you mean he holds me? And I said, no, when do you hold him? Because that, that idea that the man always has to be the protector, the one who always has to encompass, the one who has to be the bigger on the outside of the equation, is something that you can equalize in your relationship. And many times we don't do that. We keep those things. And I think an equal number of men need to be held as women, but we are a culture to do that differently. So it's interesting that it comes down to that level of the micro-expression. And I think fear is, is a really huge topic. I'd love to talk to you about this another time and add to this conversation sure. because there's just so much to learn and when we can back off and not be concerned about what people are reading on us, but can actually become interested in what am I picking up in this world? And maybe I could pay a little more attention. Maybe I could validate the fact that I feel something. Maybe I caught something. Maybe I should step back and have a little more look at that before I act or before I respond. Oh, absolutely. I mean, why not aim for being Sherlock Holmes instead? I mean, remember his famous put down of Watson, you have an instinctive grasp of the obvious. It would be wonderful for all of us to get beyond that and uh, take things in. I mean, that, there's a whole life to be lived and a life at a higher level. I mean, this can really aid uh, your professional life, your personal life. I mean, it's, it's why I jumped into this. I just said, how could I resist? I mean, this is, uh, you know, there's really two currencies in life, dollars and emotions. And emotions go everywhere, even when the dollars stop to function. And it's just essential to our lives. It is so essential. And yet we are not nearly as fluent with emotions and certainly with facial coding as we could be. You think that the TV series Lie to Me is a good depiction of what it is you do all day? 
Yes, it is. I mean, yeah, I, Dr. Ekman was an advisor for the show, and I would say every now and then, as I watched it a lot too naturally, there was something that was a little bit contrived or a little over the top. Maybe the distance was too great to pick up the expression, for instance. Uh, but no, by and large, it did a really good service for people to alert them to this extra way to take in the world. Great. Well, I'm talking with Dr. Dan Hill of sensorylogic.com, and you can go there, sensorylogic.com, and learn more about this. I find it endlessly fascinating. I hope that you have had your interest peaked as we've been talking about this. And particularly, Dan, I'd like people to be a little alerted to the fact that maybe they are picking up something that they talk themselves out of early on. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think we know more than we want to know and realize it's almost like we just want to scurry back to the comfort and, you know, imagine we're not being lied to or I'm not in a difficult situation. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think people are amazing for what they can do. I mean, I already mentioned I played tennis and love tennis. One of the great things about sports is you sometimes just manage a shot you didn't think you could manage. It just happened in the moment. If you channel the intuitive which includes just that way of picking up the emotions because you practice a bit, you just begin to do it naturally. Um, it's a wonderful opportunity. Just It just is. Well, it is. You know, I used to play tennis a lot, and uh, I enjoyed reading The Inner Game of Golf, you know, by Tim Galway because it applied to the inner game of tennis. And I, I found that very interesting. And, I, of course, there are so many aspects to playing a sport, but tennis is particularly one that I have great fondness for, so I understand your enthusiasm. Um, so you're talking about so many things that people need to know when they are in relationship with a hijackal, particularly if you were raised with one. So you have this whole set of reads, and then you become so familiar with that that it feels comfortably uncomfortable. And I'd love to have a long conversation about how we then take that set of reads we become what I call hijackal bait. People come into our life yeah. who, are, who say, you know, we are already groomed. So I, I really like how the fact <laughs> I don't have to teach you how to do this. So the expressions would be similar. And maybe we just miss the red flags. You know, maybe that just doesn't happen because we're so in the pattern. And we're so used to the pattern. And we're used to the feeling it gives us. And of course, hijackals have this wonderful ability to love bomb. So they're saying and doing everything right. But if you are picking up those things, there's that familiarity that you may be also responding to. So I want to thank you for being endlessly fascinating. I can oh. hardly wait to talk with you again. So I can <laughs> thank learn. you. That's very kind of you. Appreciate that. So my guest today has been Dr. Dan Hill of Sensory Logic. You can read his books, Emotion, Emotion Economics. Is that the right way to Emotionomics. say it? Emotionomics. Emotionomics. I got an extra syllable in there. Um, go and learn all about him, sensorylogic.com. If you find it even half as fascinating as I do, you'll be intrigued by his books. And you know what I'm going to say as I say it at the end of every broadcast. You're precious. You matter. Take really good care of yourself and demonstrate that every day. Talk soon. Thank you for joining me on the Save Your Sanity podcast today. I hope you've had some new insights 
some ideas and strategies to help you gain clarity and confidence for moving forward toward greater emotional health and safety. You deserve that, and so do your children. If you found value here and would like to support this podcast with a dollar or five each month, please do so at patreon.com slash saveyoursanity. Learn more about how to work with me via video conference, join my optimized circles, or subscribe to this podcast on my YouTube channel at my website, transformingrelationship.com. Talk soon.